One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. As well as doing responsible things like exercise and making podcasts, one of the things that's helped me through this period has been beer. And you could get eight free beers delivered direct to your doorstep. All you need to do is go to beer52.com slash party. That's beer, the number five, the number two, dot com slash party. And cover just £5.95 for the postage. And you'll get eight globally sourced fresh craft beers delivered right to your doorstep. You don't even need to leave the house. Think of it as a kind of cabinet of eight great beers. Each month, Beer 52 send a case of craft beer from a different part of the world. Recent cases have included beer from the Alps, New Zealand, the USA, Ireland, Korea and Germany. So if you're looking to stock up or just fancy trying something different, Beer 52's Craft Beer Discovery Club is for you. And if you do change your mind, you can pause or cancel your account at any time you like. Every case also includes the award-winning craft beer magazine Ferment and a tasty snack. Just go to beer52.com slash party and get your first case of eight beers for £5.95. That's beer52.com slash party. Hello and welcome to The Political Party. I hope this episode finds you well. Today's guest is Anna Sawa and this is absolutely amazing. If nothing else, it really proves that politicians, some of them, are different to the rest of us. You need exceptional levels and reserves of resilience and personal and inner strength, as well as a general optimism, I think, um, and a positivity. And Anas has all these things in abundance. And he's had to, because some of the things you're going to hear on this podcast are really shocking. The abuse that he and his family have faced throughout their life is appalling. Uh, And he talks about it frankly, but very philosophically uh, in this interview, and still remains one of the most optimistic people I've ever met. And that is remarkable. Um, We talk about all the big things you would expect us to talk about. How does... How hard is it for a progressive politician to make the case in Scotland for the union when that union is currently led by Boris Johnson? All the things you would expect us to talk about in Scottish and UK politics we talk about, uh, including the relationships that he has uh, with people in other political parties, across political divides, um, the future of Scotland in the UK or not, the polling that shows that the Scottish public is moving towards independence, particularly the younger they get, and what a challenge that is for people like Anas who want to keep Scotland in the UK. So there's a whole load of stuff, but and I'm sure when you finish listening to this, you will have the same sense of him that I have, which is the levels of resilience that he has. I mean, I'm not sure I could have been through some of the things he's been through and feel the way that he feels. Uh, he is a remarkable individual. Um, but he is back on the Labour front bench this week, and I began by asking him, in a fortnight when Scotland have qualified for their first major tournament um, by the time it comes round for 23 years and uh, Anas finding himself back on the Labour front bench after a few years, which of those two things was the most significant event for Scotland? Uh, 
No, no, there's, I think there's been a couple of significant events. There's been the, the win for Joe Biden in America, despite what Donald Trump might be claiming. There's been Scotland qualifying for the Euro Championships, back on the Labour front bench. But the biggest highlight of all is, Matt, of course, being on your show with oh you. My God. Because, you, because you, you have got me through lockdown. You have got me through lockdown. But no, off the two, clearly, uh, Scotland qualifying for the Euro Championship is a massive moment. You know, the country needed a lift. And Andy Robertson and the boys gave the country a massive, massive lift. Um, when you know we've we've had a tough year, so any any good news feels extra special. That would have been extra special in any time, so that was massive for us. And we're now looking forward to welcoming England to Hamden, and uh, I'm looking forward to being there. I hope with my own kids, so we can boo your team down and give you a good gubbin. That would be great, but I think the England game's at Wembley. Is it? Yeah. <laughs> I'm coming to Wembley. I'm coming to Wembley. I'm I'm coming to hostile territory. I'm going to come to hostile territory and boo the England boys off the pitch and uh, and hope for a Scotland victory. Oh man, yeah, I've got tickets for one of our group games at Wembley, which sadly isn't the Scotland game. I've got a ticket for Hamden, uh, I think, for the Croatia or the Czechoslovakia game, Czech Republic. Well, you're welcome. You're welcome up to Scotland. I I hope the travelling restrictions are over by then. And we'll uh, we'll allow you in, Matt. Well, that'd be a real shame, wouldn't it, to have this? You know, for Scotland to be at a major tournament that that is partially hosted at Hamden, uh, and and playing England as part of that group as well, it would be a real shame if there aren't at least some fans back in grounds. I mean, do do you think? Do you hold out much hope that by June next year we might be able to go to games like that? Look, I, th- I think it's going to depend a lot on on the vaccine, isn't it? I think how quickly we can roll the vaccine out, how quickly and effectively. We can bring the virus down and, and bring the death rates down. I think everyone's ambition would be to have us back um, with fans in the stadium, not just for international matches, but right across the board. I know you're a big football fan like I am. Um, you're probably more obsessed with Nottingham Forest than I am with my teams, to be honest. Um, but um, but I think, yeah, I think the ambition has got to be to have them back because, it's look, it's a massive moment. It's a massive moment for any country to qualify for the European Championships. But, but I think most people recognise um, that it's an extra special moment for, for us. You know, we've had, we've had a long, long absence. The last time we were in a European Championships or any major Championships was when I was in school, and and that was a pretty long time ago. <laughs> um, so you know, it, th- this is a special moment for my kids because uh, because yeah. like like I like when I was at school when I remembered those those Scotland days. Um, you know, that, that's a chance for my kids to make their own memories. Um, I'm just hoping it's not a Gaza moment. I hope it's more a more a you know. Scott McTominay moment or Andy Robertson moment or a Kieran Turney moment or something like that rather than a Gaza moment. Well, Scotland has some fantastic players. And, uh, you know, I watch a lot of Scottish football and I watch the Scottish international the problem is, team. The problem is they're all left-backs. The problem <laughs> you've got is we've got a team of left-backs and you can only play one left-back. So that, that's that's a big problem for us. You know, you, you, know we, we, you guys have had a problem on the left-hand side of midfield or left side of your pitch for decades. I mean, I, I remember growing up and you guys used to always wish that Ryan Giggs would pretend he was English rather than yeah. Welsh to, sol- to solve your left-wing problem. Um, people might argue we've had problems all over the pitch, but we've got two of the best left-backs in the world. Yes. Um, and we've got, to, we've got to find a way of sl- slotting them both into the same team. Well, it's very exciting. Um, obviously, uh, playing England makes it even more exciting for all of us. Uh, thank God that they'll be Scotland... friendly. They'll be friendly. They'll be... I'm sure there's, it will. there's no there's no historic significance or or current. They'll be friendly. <laughs> I was going to say at least it's a fixture that no politician would dare politicise uh, in, <laughs> in, in the times in which we live. I mean, is there any part of you that slightly worries? You think, oh god, you know, the 18th of June next year, we're going to have to stay off Twitter for a few days. 
No, no, I, I think the I think the great thing about what will happen on the eighteenth of June is I think no matter where people sit on the whole constitutional question, um, you know, Scotland's been a very divided place. Uh, you know, people would argue the UK's been a very divided place, the world's a very divided place, but Scotland's been a very divided place in the run up to twenty fourteen and then since. Um, and and I think that football match, especially because it's against England, whether you're a yes or a no, whether you're pro independence or pro UK, I think we will all unify in in singing our flower of Scotland and waving our saltire and in hoping to drub uh, England uh, in those European Championships. Even better, we knock them out and qualify ourselves into the next phase. I am petrified that you're going to be. I'm upsetting. I'm upsetting all the English listeners, of course. But hey ho. Oh well, I think. Um... People are really. I would always want Scotland to be at a tournament. I'd always want to be playing home nations together. You know, they're the most exciting yeah, game. England Wales in 2016, England Scotland in Euro '96. But it is. It's incredible. I, 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 think, I think there's an argument. I think there's actually an argument for having regular home nations tournaments. Absolutely. You know I mean? Absolutely. If, we should have regular home nations tournaments that, that brings the home nations together in a, in a football tournament. I think it'd be phenomenal. I think totally people would agree. get. If you if you think about the excitement that's created from. The uh, the ashes. Yes, I'm telling you, the home nations tour- football tournament would be even would be that on on steroids. It'd be, it'd be huge. Um, and you know, when I when I was growing up, it was the Five Nations, um, the, you know, rugby that that created excitement on a regular yeah. basis. Why not do the same for football? I totally agree, especially in those summers where there's not a World Cup or a or a exactly. or Euros. I suppose there's exactly. the, the, the manager. The managers will all be upset because we're suggesting their players play more games. But actually, a lot of these players are playing internationals anyway. That are usually friendlies. We can keep these friendly, but just have as an home nations tournament. It'd be, it'd be, it'd be honestly, it'd be fantastic. I would love it. I would absolutely love it. I totally agree. So, um, Scotland have qualified, and you're back on the Labour front bench now. Um, did you celebrate that at all? Look, I, I mean, I've I've always made it very clear um, that you know I, I love the Labour Party. I, I love Scotland. If, if I'm asked to serve either, I, I would I would always say yes. So. For me, it wasn't really a second thought. I was very kindly asked by Richard Leonard to come back on the front bench. Um, he gave me an easy gig with the Constitution, uh, but, I, but I'm happy to oblige and happy to be back um, supporting the party. Um, I, I, I think I think if you look at what, where we are currently, um, either as a country in, in, the, in the global context or where we are as a party in, in the current political context, um, you know there is, a, there is a period of healing required. There's a period of rebuilding required. Um, there is a period of uh, reflection required um, and we've got to get ourselves back to where we want to be. And, and I'm, I'm passionate about the Labour Party and I'm passionate about Scotland and I, and I think the two of them are a perfect partnership. We just need to make the electorate believe it. Well, I was going to say, convincing the people of Scotland of that has, has not been easy for the past six years. Um, yeah, I, I think, but I think there's an opportunity for us, Matt. And, and I, think, I, think the, I think the opportunity for us is our, our country... So people look at what's happened in the US and if you'd asked people um, just a short while ago, they would have probably said that there was very little hope, that it was almost inevitable that Donald Trump was going to win again. It was almost inevitable that that was going to be the future for the US in terms of going into the next generation. Now, don't get me wrong, I think there's still massive challenges and massive divisions in the US and, and that's and some of that is reflected here. People here probably said you're, you're never going to get a credible Labour Party again. You're never going to get a chance of having a Labour Prime Minister again. I think we have the chance of solving that in the next uh, three or four years. And, and a lot of people said you're not going to get a credible Labour Party again. A lot of people said that it was done. and we need, People needed to break away. The party was going to split. Um, that's not happened. 
and and I think people are rebuilding their confidence in the Labour Party across the UK. The challenge for us is to make that happen in Scotland. And if you if you look at people, I think people have got division fatigue. You know, there's lo- there's lo- there's I think people are fatigued in general with with this whole pandemic and and the lockdown, etc. But you know, I think people do want our country to be pulled together. I think people do want our people to be pulled together, and I think the Labour Party has a more has, has a more credible history and a more credible platform to do that. Um, but one of the things I always say to people is it's it's easier to preach unity if we're unified ourselves. It is, but part of the problem of of, of having a big tent and every political party is a coalition is that sometimes people inside the tent, or indeed for a period of time running the tent might not be the sorts of people you necessarily want to be unified with and that's been a real challenge over the last few years is if you think about the the hard left that ran the labor party and all the things that went with that the the anti-semitism that led to the equalities and human rights commission report would a moderate labor person actually obviously the labor party didn't split i wonder had keir starmer not won the labor leadership election this time what might have happened had had say rebecca long bailey won but there was only so long that people could tolerate being part of something like that, wasn't there? I mean, would you have really stuck well, around had yeah, Rebecca Long Bailey won and continued the Corbyn legacy? Look, I, I, I would have definitely stayed the Labour Party. Would have definitely um, stuck around, and and the and the reason why is because like I think we got I think we got to look at it in the in the right context. I think if you if you walk away, you're handing over what is uh, an institution but also something that people have literally put sweat, blood and tears into to build. And and I think walking walking away from that and allowing others to hijack that would have been a fatal, fatal mistake, no matter how long it took to get to where we needed to be. But 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 on top of that, I think I think the two fundamental problems that we had and I hope we're we're trying to resolve is one, I, I can't believe that we still need to win an argument with people that winning matters. Yeah. You know, I, I, it's still, you know, and I, I don't mean that as a flipping point. I, I mean that genuinely is we still have people in our own party, in our own movement that we need to persuade that winning matters because all the great ideas that we have, all the, all the great passion that we have, all the Zoom CLP meetings we go to, all the arguments that we have, all the debates we have, all the ideas we generate are only worthwhile if we're actually got a chance of implementing them. The Labour Party is not a talking shop. It's not a it's not a protest movement. It's not just a campaign movement. It's it's a movement to change our country, and you only fundamentally change a country if you're in power. And so so what one is I think we've I think we're finally winning the argument that we need to win again. And the second one is it always surprises me when when political parties try and give reasons to people for them not to vote for us rather than to vote for us, as if to say we don't want your vote. No political party should ever be sending a message to the electorate. Um, we don't want your vote, and and I think we again have made that mistake. We've got to be honest. Um, not everybody that votes for S- for the SNP is a nationalist. Not everyone that's ever voted for the Labour Party is a socialist, and not everyone that's ever voted for the Conservative Party is a raging capitalist. Just like not everyone that votes for Donald Trump is a racist. And I think as long as we we we, we keep ourselves in these silos and not recognise that what might com- be comfortable territory for us that are part of the, the wheels of the movement that keep it going, what might not be what's relevant to the electorate that we need to persuade um, and we need them to support us because I mean, it's their lives fundamentally we're trying to change. 
when you look at the the Labour Party across the UK, then obviously Keir Starmer is a is a, a move towards the centre ground. Sadiq Khan is a is a Labour moderate. Andy Burnham is is fairly on the left. Scottish Labour under Richard Leonard is really the last significant outpost of Corbynism in in, in the in the in the UK Labour Party body politic. Really, um, I, mean, I think I think I think I mean Richard Richard would argue he's never been a, a part of 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 any um, faction, and that he. That he would want us to be a broad church party, and 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 I think we've got to demonstrate that in the in the in the coming period if we are to be a significant force in the um, in the election, we, we cannot we can't allow, you know, the, the the bit that worries me, um, Matt is, I think I think the I think we were I think we were really lucky in Scotland in that our factionalism didn't kick in when we had the the Corbyn election. And I think we still had a sense of a unified purpose, given given the trauma, to be to be blunt, the trauma that we had been through in the Scottish Labour Party and in <coughs> a couple of elections uh, in terms of a general election context and a few elections in terms of the Scottish Parliament. And so we didn't really have that same factional infighting, I think. And I I think the danger would be, and I and I know that Richard and Keir would want to resist this, is that we we somehow become the lag. And trying to we, we keep the factionalism late in Scotland, when in actual fact, Scotland is the bit that we need to fix. We're not going to get a UK Labour government unless we have a functioning, active, winning Scottish Labour Party in Scotland. Um, and we're not going to be able to change the lives of people across Scotland or indeed across the UK unless we have a, um, a functioning, competent, principled, outward-looking Labour Party in Scotland. And, and that's what we've got to collectively try and build. When you look at the, the the conversation in Scottish politics and the individuals that get the coverage and that and that dominate the argument, Nicola Sturgeon obviously is just so far out ahead in terms of polling, and obviously she's the first minister. She enjoys the trappings of power and the advantages that go with that. Really, when it comes to the debate in Scotland, and correct me if I'm wrong, I'm, I say this from the distance of London, but it feels like a kind of SNP versus Tory narrative, and that's certainly the one that the media likes. Is that Douglas Ross is the guy charged with saving the union, however accurate or not that is. Labour don't really feel as if, though, they're able to get onto that pitch and be part of that space and make a progressive Labour case that includes being part of the union. It feels like the Tories and Boris versus Nicola Sturgeon. Uh, do, does that feel well, like that to you? Well, I, 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 think, I, think there's a couple, I think there's a couple of things. One is, I, I think, where we need to... If we allow the, the, the Constitution to dominate all of our politics and the constitutional hardline yes-no debate to debate our politics, dominate our politics, the Labour Party is always going to feel sidetracked. And I think it, it'd be a mistake and and I think it's less a problem in Scotland. I think I think some of the UK broadcasters probably have, are part of the challenge in this is that Scottish news very rarely makes it UK wide, whereas lots of English news makes it makes it UK wide. And so, so I think significant moments in Scotland should become UK wide news. And the reason why I think that's important it's because I still think a majority of people in Scotland digest their news or take their news on UK platforms rather than Scottish platforms. So they still watch Sky News. They still watch BBC News 24. They're not all logging in to watch STV News or, or reporting Scotland. They do watch them, but, but I'm, I'm not saying that it's anywhere near the scale, perhaps, of the, of the national news and the national moments and the national headlines. And, and I think, particularly if you look at this um, COVID-19 uh, period, where... The UK uh, broadcasters are, are covering what looks like a, a bumbling, buffoon, um, incompetent, really poor communicating Boris Johnson government in the UK. And the um, Scottish uh, broadcasters are 
to her credit, um, broadcasting a first minister that that is standing up every single day, that, that is giving a briefing every single day, that that looks and sounds competent, that is communicating, and, and so I mean, I I've throughout this entire pandemic, I've been constructive in in terms of um, what my own tone has been with the government. I recognise they've got a really difficult job. I recognise they're not envious of anyone. I recognise they're working around the clock. And I do thank the First Minister for being a really good communicator and a better communicator than Boris Johnson. Not that that's a high bar, but she is an effective communicator and we should thank her for that. But I think the part that has been missing is a communication strategy isn't the same as a virus elimination strategy. And if you look at the mistakes that they've been making in England around COVID-19, around PPE, around our testing system, around our tracing system, around what's happened to our care homes, we made the exact same mistakes in Scotland. Um, so this week we had 5,000 deaths now from COVID-19 in Scotland since the start of the pandemic. That should be a moment for us to pause and reflect and recognise that eight months into the pandemic, we, we haven't got things right. And, and going back to your original question, I think that's the space in the territory that we should be occupying with the right tone, but the right message about saying we support the government when they get it right, but when they get it wrong, we have to challenge them. And the government, so there's three parts. I know I've gone into COVID-19, I apologise. but No, this is brilliant. That's great. But but there's but the, there's, the way I see it in brain, right, is there's a three-part strategy on how you suppress the virus. You defeat the virus by the vaccine. So the vaccine is what's going to ultimately defeat the virus. And we've got to make sure we've got a really good vaccine rollout program, much better than the flu vaccine program that we had, which which had its flaws. But the three-part process of the suppression, one part is the restrictions, which the people are responsible for. Yes, the government sets the restrictions, but the people are responsible for, for, for delivering and living the restrictions. And But the two parts the government are responsible for in that three-part strategy is the testing regime and the tracing system. I think, by and large, people are following the guidelines. I think, by and large, people have made huge, huge sacrifices, and we should thank them for it. So they're getting their part right. But the two parts the government are responsible for, I'm sorry, it's not working. So the test, the testing regime, for eight months we've been talking about testing and we still don't have NHS staff being tested every week. We still don't have care at home staff being tested every week. We still don't have care home staff being tested every week. There's an argument for teachers to be getting tested every week given that schools are going to stay open even in the most toughest of uh, restrictions. At the same time, you've got premiership footballers getting tested every week. Now, I'm not saying they shouldn't be getting tested. It's right they're getting tested. But it shouldn't be one rule for them because people recognise we need them carry on playing to keep the industry going to keep us entertained well actually we need the nhs staff to keep going because they're the ones that are going to keep us alive so we need them to be tested every single week and then on the tracing system i think the reason why people have lockdown fatigue and and covid fatigue is remember we were told by two governments both the uk government and the scottish government that the reason why we needed to go into lockdown was so we could prepare so one was to uh, suppress the virus. One was to, to stop there being an overrun on NHS. But it was also to prepare our systems so we wouldn't need to go back into lockdown again. And I'm sorry, it hasn't worked. The tracing system has not worked. We were meant to be on a virus elimination strategy in Scotland by June or July. It's not happened. We're now going back into lockdown. My city is in lockdown from, uh, from Friday morning. And so we're in a real tough, tough situation. We are... Um, People are, people are seeing that it didn't work. So the government have got to use the next three weeks. I understand Christmas is important. I love Christmas. I genuinely love Christmas. Um, I, there is no one that has more festive spirit than I do. I dress up as an elf every year. I put the, the, the hat on. I wear my Christmas jumpers. Genuinely, genuinely, I love Christmas. Right? And I want Christmas to be special for everyone um, right around the country. 
But the next three weeks has to be about fixing our systems, not just suppressing the virus so we can have a good Christmas together. And then we go back in the same cycle again in Jan. We've got to fix our testing system. We've got to fix our tracing system. And I think I think if the UK um, broadcasters were given that reflection of what's truly happening in Scotland, perhaps that that would make life a bit bit easier. I'm, I'm not saying talk down Scotland, because some people will say, oh, that's you talking down Scotland. No, it's about reporting what's actually happening in, in Scotland. Um, but sorry, I, I completely jumped from your actual no. question, which was about Boris. But I can come back and talk, I can talk about <laughs> Boris. I can talk about Boris the disaster for as long as you like. <laughs> There's so many things I want to ask you that come out of that before we before we come on to Boris and his implications for the union and and other things. Just on the advantage of Nicola Sturgeon being a better communicator than Boris Johnson and the effect that has perhaps on the Scottish people. Why then, if she's a better communicator, and I accept as well that she is. In terms of household mixing and things, it feels like that's been as big a problem in Scotland as it has been in parts of England. So, And this is more just a point about taking the party politics out of it in a way. It's almost about behavioural psychology. Why then, when there is a better communicator in charge, do people, some people, still not follow the rules? Like as a politician, what in a way, what can Nicola Sturgeon possibly do to reach those people who still go, wow, you know, I think, I'm going to go and see my grandma? But no, I think... I think I think it's probably more complicated than that, Matt. And and I think part of the complication is I think we've got to root our restrictions in the real world. So there was a there was a college, King's College of London report done um, when it when it um, surveyed, I think it was about three and a half thousand people that had been through the tracing system across the UK, not just in England, but across the UK. Uh, and and it found staggering figures about only a quarter of folk were, were actually going along with the with the with the guidance. But the reason why people gave wasn't because it's young guys want to have a party or a baby. It, it, it's it's largely because for a lot of people, they are in a broken home. They're in really poor conditioned housing. They don't have the safety net or an adequate enough safety net for them to be able to put food on the table or to, to deliver, pay their mortgage or, 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 or support their family much more widely. So they're having to go out and be the delivery driver or the, or the Uber. Uh, driver or, or or take other jobs, um, and a lot of people are stuck up tenement buildings. And you know, I, I'm very fortunate. I've got a garden. You're very fortunate. You can get out and walk about, and I'm in, in the beautiful part of the, the city that you're in. Um, not everyone's got that same blessing, and a lot of people are in really, really troubled and difficult homes. Some um, people and, are, but there are there are still other people that are basically middle are, are class there, folk are there, who just don't are there, comply. Are there as are there as um, Piers Morgan would describe them COVID idiots. <laughs> of course, of course, of course, there are. Um, some would argue there's an individual SNP MP that was, but I mean, there, there are, there are. Now an independent. There are, there are people. Sorry, that's true. There are those that are <laughs> that are that are flagrantly um, abusing the rules. But if we're if we're honest about it, the vast majority of people, I think, have on balance done the right thing, and. And I think have followed the restrictions, and so and they're making a huge sacrifice. I mean, I can only think what the mental health consequences are going to be for a generation going forward. We've got a generation of young people that are too scared to hug their grannies. I mean, that that that's going to have a a, a scarring consequence for for a generation. I think. Um. So so yes, there's that part, but that doesn't negate the part that I'm saying about fixing our testing regime and our tracing system because. That's what the government's fundamentally responsible for. We're not getting it right. And what's the perception like in Scotland? I mean, the polling that I see seems to suggest that 
when given a choice, people find Nicola Sturgeon far more amenable and effective and uh, competent in every way compared to Boris Johnson. Um, but I think the majority the of people in England will think that. Oh, absolutely, yes. Yes, that's what I was yeah, going to say. So I think there's a challenge, right? So I think part of the challenge is people in England will see that Nicola Sturgeon is, is a much better communicator um, and a much better performer and looks more competent than, than Boris. And so, therefore, we'll repeat this. If only, if only Nicholas Sturgeon was in charge, which helps Nicholas Sturgeon, by the way, in Scotland, because it helps amplify that message. And again, I'm not criticising the first minister. I'm, I'm praising the first minister. She has been an effective communicator. I think she has worked round the clock through this pandemic, um, and she's shown amazing uh, stamina. Um, and and she and she deserves huge credit for that. So I'm not. I'm, I don't want anyone listening to this to think I'm. I'm having a go at her personally. I'm, I'm praising her personally. But but on the actual outcomes of the of the pandemic itself, um, I, I think that's where I, I would have a question. But, you know, if you look at what happened in um, in Liverpool, so when, when Andy Burnham, when I think he spoke for the country, actually, I don't think he just spoke for, for Greater Manchester, sorry, I don't think he just spoke for Greater Manchester, when he spoke for the country about how we've got to have adequate support and not force restrictions on people without giving them the support and the safety net, I think he spoke for the country. So my argument would be that Boris isn't Britain. The, Boris isn't Britain. The, ask people in Cardiff if they think Boris is Britain. Ask people in London if they think Boris is Britain. Ask people in Liverpool if they think Boris is Britain. Ask people in Manchester if they think Boris is Britain. Ask people in Glasgow if they think Boris is Britain. So let's not pretend that Boris is Britain. He's not. He's a he's a bumbling buffoon who I think is the greatest threat to the United Kingdom. But he's also a great threat, I think, not just for Scotland's place in the United Kingdom, but the United Kingdom in general. But that's not just an isolated um, incident. Boris Johnson's not going to be around forever. And I think um, we've got. Uh, I think lots of Tories don't want him to be around forever either. Um, so I think he's got his own. I think he's got his own problems. Um, but let's not pretend it's Boris. Boris is Britain versus Sturgeon Scotland. Nicola Sturgeon isn't Scotland. Boris Johnson isn't Britain. And both of them would love you to believe that that is a choice. That's not the choice. It may not be the choice, but it feels like it's the choice, and and that will reflect the way that people perceive this crisis and every other issue. Everything gets forced through these lenses of Brexit, independence, SNP versus, versus the Tories, and, and whatever else are the, are the kind of big issues of the day. How hard is it for you to make the case for the union as a <laughs> Labour politician when Boris Johnson is the Prime Minister? Look, I, I think I think you're right. I think it makes it much much harder when you have. Boris Johnson is Prime Minister. There's no point. There's no point sugarcoating that. There's no point denying that. And there's no doubt when when the frame is Boris versus Nicola, that makes it much much harder. But I think the very same people that you're referring to who would have that reflection, I think also are fatigued themselves. I think people recognise that we have had a short, sharp body blow this year. If you think about the economic crash that we had due to the banking crisis, Matt. It took 10 years of austerity. It took us 10 years to get through that, 10 years of austerity. This pandemic has is sharper and more deeply than even the banking crisis. People have lost lives. Thousands of people have lost their lives. Hundreds of thousands of people's livelihoods are at risk. And I think there is a case to be made to say to people that for the next four or five years, let's bring our country together. Let's bring our pe people together. Let's have a period of healing and a period of camp and make it our collective national mission that we're going to rebuild our economy, we're going to get people back to work, we're going to fix our education system, and we're going to build an NHS that never again has to choose 
never again has to choose between treating a virus or treating cancer. Our cancer diagnosis rates are 4,000 fewer people diagnosed with cancer this year than last year. And that's not because incidence has fallen. It's not because cancer has gone away. It's because our systems haven't worked. We can never allow that to happen again. And I think in that frame where you say to people, look, all you're deciding on, particularly if you think about the context of the next election, what you're voting on in the next election is what you want your parliament's priorities to be for the next four or five years. And if you want your parliament's priorities to be for the next four or five years, not for the rest of your life, for the next four or five years to recover from the pandemic, I think that's a space that we can we can occupy and hopefully move the SNP on uh, as well about, about trying to bring our country together and heal. Yeah, but they're not good. <laughs> they have one priority and they hold all the cards constitutionally, don't they? Apart from being in charge in Westminster, which of course they never would be. But they're more than likely to have a very good set of Holyrood elections in a few months' time. They'll take that perhaps justifiably as a mandate for another referendum. All the polling says that people in Scotland are now in favour, particularly young people. I mean, even if, let's say, you have a referendum and win it, do you worry that, that making the case for the union gets harder the younger you get? I think, there, I think, there's, a few, I think there's a few things in, in that, Matt. First of all, no one's cast a single vote yet. And I don't think we should we should accept. I've seen too many people have a fatalism, both inside the Labour Party, by the way, and also outside of it, a fatalism that an SNP majority is inevitable at the next election, and a and a Labour a Labour having a really really bad election is inevitable at the next election. I don't think it's inevitable. We shouldn't be in the business of punditry. We should be in the business of trying to change people's opinions. And the Scottish Labour Party shouldn't just be waiting to see what happens in May. We should be we should be we should be trying to influence what happens in me and I think we can influence what happens in me and, and help to stop an SNP majority but also get a much better result for, for the Labour Party. The second part is, you're right, recent polling trends have shown a majority in favour of independence. There's no point in denying those recent polls. But those very same polls, when people are asked when they want independence, they're not saying they want independence now. They're not saying they want a referendum now. What they are recognising is they want a period of calm. They want to come through COVID and then they would like to see independence at some point in the future. So what we're saying to people is your choice is what happens in the next four or five years. That's what you're voting for. You're not voting for the rest of your life. Um, you're not voting like you have done in, in, in a referendum when you were told it was once in a generation or in, or in a Brexit referendum when you were told, again, it was a one-time opportunity. An election is, a, is about a four or five-year cycle and you get to see your priorities after that. So, so I think it's important to recognise that disconnect between a majority in favour of support of independence and those that when they want that independence or when they want that referendum. And how much but of I a priority it is just in general? I mean, it always ranks fairly low when people are asked to, right. to rank their priorities. That's right. Absolutely, absolutely right. And, and, and I think people would understand that saving people's jobs has got to be the first priority. So saving people's lives has got to be the first priority. Saving people's jobs has got to be the second priority. And fixing our education system has got to be the third priority. And, and having an NHS fit for purpose has got to be the fourth priority. I think people would, would accept that. But I think the really interesting question you asked was about the, the young versus old divide. If you look at those recent polls, you're looking at about 75% of 16 to 24-year-olds saying they're in support of independence. I think it was either 75 or 78%. Different polls will have different figures, but that round ballpark figure. That number doesn't surprise me, Matt. And the reason why it doesn't surprise me is if you think about that 16 to 24 age group, they have probably not lived a day of their adult life in a stable United Kingdom. They've lived every day of their adult life in a UK that is pandering to Trump's America, 
that is uh, voting for Brexit and it has a bumbling buffoon as their Prime Minister. So they've not lived in a stable United Kingdom. And I, I think part of the job of, of the UK Labour Party, but also the Scottish Labour Party that believes in the United Kingdom, is, is to demonstrate that we can have a stable, positive, progressive, outward-looking, um, social justice-based UK um, government. And, and I think that's a frustration that young people would feel, like I said, in other parts of the UK, like they do in Scotland. The danger with Brexit is such a big deal for people, particularly young people. On top of that, and, and Brexit seems to sort of change the balance of risk. People say, well, staying in the UK is risky. So so then leaving feels less risky. With COVID, so many of the arguments against Scottish independence are economic. Uh, the latest round of JERS figures where the Scottish government is running a far higher deficit than the UK and, and what independence would mean in terms of austerity or, or tax rises. After COVID, where the UK government is leveraged for over a trillion quid, people in Scotland might say, well, everyone's going to be living with a high deficit anyway. COVID, in a way, seems to reduce the risk of, of independence. I think, I think the again, the challenge with that is if, if we accept that what the government's saying, so Ian Blackford's suggesting we have a referendum next year. So the SNP leader in Westminster suggesting we have a referendum next year. Do, do people honestly believe that next year coming through a virus that we want to spend three months campaigning on our independence referendum campaign when we'll need to be rebuilding. We want every civil servant to be rebuilding our country. Don't we? Do, do we really want to be, do, do we really want me and Nicola Sturgeon to be arguing about what currency Scotland's going to have rather than how we put food on the table and protect people's jobs? I would much rather work with her to rebuild our country. And I'm not, I'm not afraid to, I'm, I'm not, and a lot of people will be horrified by saying it. You know, Sarwar wants to work with Sturgeon. I don't. I, 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 I don't. I don't have any qualm in saying that in this current context, I would work with any politician of any political party to pull our country back together again. And um, you know, Nicola Sturgeon is a first minister. She's in government in Scotland. We should be willing to work with her when, when her priorities match ours. So I would much rather be working with Nicola Sturgeon to rebuild our country rather than having to have a debate about you know currencies or monetary unions, etc. Um, I think it's interesting the point you make about. Um, Brexit. The funny thing is, you know, politicians need to have some consistency. You you can't quote the IFS when it suits you because you're anti-Brexit, but then say we should ignore the experts in the IFS when it doesn't suit you when you support independence. The very same arguments that I made for why I think the UK is better placed staying in the European Union, those arguments times three are what they are for Scotland remaining in the United Kingdom. That's not to say the United Kingdom is perfect. It's not. And I think what's happened in Liverpool and Manchester has emphasised that we do not have a functioning, active United Kingdom um, government the way that we would like to have or a system. <clears throat> and we've got, to, we've got to correct that. And that's and that's a big, 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 big challenge for us. I spoke to Angus Robertson the other week, uh, who obviously is a former SNP Member of Parliament. I listened to it. I listened to it. I'll, 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 Angus and I have good banter. And the reason why Angus and I get on <clears throat> so well is because Angus used to represent uh, Murray, as yes. as you thankfully pronounced correctly in the in the podcast. <laughs> Only because I met him before and he put me right. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, my 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 mum's from Elgin, uh, sorry, from Lossiemouth, which is right next to Elgin, and my uncle currently lives in Elgin. So, um, so I so Angus and I had a, had a natural affinity because of our connection to Lossiemouth, where there's also the RAF base of, of Lossiemouth. Because <clears throat> interesting story. So when my um, 
I'm going off on tangents, Matt, but, uh, but uh, I've listened to your shows, so guests often go on tangents. So I think tangents are welcome. <clears throat> so, so actually, when my, when, my, um, when my grandfather came here in the 1940s in the midst of a part, um, partition in, in um, what was then Greater India, he arrived in the south of uh, England, <clears throat> travelled north, and he didn't settle in London, didn't settle in Birmingham, didn't settle in Manchester, couldn't settle in uh, Glasgow or Edinburgh. And he ended up in this small seaside village of Lossiemouth, which had never seen, probably probably almost never seen a non-white person in, in his in their lives, um, and and made made home there. He came across um, a, a lady. He was he was a bootlegger. So he, he sold clothes door to door, um, chapped this woman's door. Um, she she treated him like his her own son. She had four boys of her own, and he actually ended up living with them. Moving in, they stayed six doors down from Ramsay McDonald. Wow. Um, and his plan was always to go back to what then became uh, Pakistan, but he fell in love with Lossiemouth, fell in love with Scotland, and so has brought his own family over here. My mum moved to Lossiemouth when she was four years old and uh, grew up there, lived there until she got married and moved to Glasgow in her mid-20s. Um, so so we, we always shared a love and an affinity for, for Lossiemouth. <laughs> I've never been to Lossiemouth. Do you oh, still have amazing. family there? I do. I've got. I've still got cousins there. I've still got uh, an aunt and uncle there. Uh, both my my grandparents on my mum's side are both buried in Lossiemouth. Um, my my grandmother, who who lived with us in Glasgow, was adamant that um, Lossiemouth was her true home because that's where she lived with my granddad, and that she, no matter what happened to her um, or where she stayed, she wanted to be buried in Lossiemouth, um, and for two reasons: one. Was uh, so three is one she loved Lossiemouth two because she wanted to be buried in the same graveyard as my grandfather, and the third one was and, and this is this is the, the sweet part is she she said that she wanted the family to keep a connection with Lossiemouth because Lossiemouth was was their home, and so by both of them being buried there it meant that we would have to go to Lossiemouth and keep a connection to it, um and so she's right she's right it's a, it's an amazing place. And as Angus always reminds me, and Douglas Ross does now, nearly all, over half of all Scottish whisky distilleries are in that constituency. So quite a yeah, handy place to have to a, a visit. Good, yeah, yeah, but a, a good a good young Muslim boy like me, of course, I I, I, get, I get none of the joys of the whisky. I, I only go for the ice cream, man, <laughs> and the beach. I go for the ice cream and the beach. Well, that's why you look so young, because you don't drink. I tell you, I don't feel young. I mean, I, honestly, my, my kids think I'm really old. Right, and you know, and I'm I'm really depressed this week because the um, I'm going to name it actually. There's there's a there's a, a police officer in the Scottish Parliament by the name of Avril, who is uh, one of the people that are in charge of security for the Parliament. A fantastic. Um, I, I, I should maybe reserve that judgment. I should tell, tell the story. But um, so I was talking to her last week, and um, I asked her, "How old do you think I am?" Um, she was telling me a, a bit of a sad story, but I was asking her, how old do you think I am? She's retiring soon, and that's why I asked her, how old do you think I am? She goes, oh, you're only a few years younger than me. And I said, well, how old, I said, how old do you think I am? She says, you're 46. <laughs> and honestly, I, I think it, it, it was almost the first time a MSP had assaulted a police officer in, the, in, in Parliament. So I'm like, I'm like, no. Clearly, we were socially distant, so that made life a bit easier. Um, but she was very kind to say, oh, no, I only you don't look it. I only assumed you were uh, forty-six because you're on to your third career, um, and and I thought that's that's I'm not, I'm not sure that's a compliment, but um, 
Well, it kind of is. I mean, you've been around a while for a relatively young politician. You've you've been around for quite a quite a stretch now. Yeah. So, so this this year is now my my tenth year in frontline politics. So ten years, and I keep reminding people I'm only thirty eight. And a lot has changed. Thirty-seven. A lot has changed. I'm getting um, wrong myself. I was going to ask you about a lot what, what oh, Angus Robertson said. Um, and then let's talk about what's changed in those 10 years. But but one thing that Angus said that I think is hard to disagree with, or, or maybe it's not, is there is a sense that the tectonic plates are shifting. And, and, and the polling seems to suggest that, is that people in Scotland are moving away from uh, the union and, and moving more in favour of independence. Just anecdotally, around in the street, thinking of friends of yours that may have voted no yes time last time, but are maybe changing their mind. Is that borne out by your by your sort of personal experience? Do you feel that actually next time it will be harder, and that there is a there is a sense of change, however small, out there in the air on the streets? I think I think I think we were denying reality if we didn't accept that the context is has changed. So I, I don't think we should deny reality. So um, where where the country was in 2014 um, is a very different place from where the country is now. And and that and that's partly because the world has changed, Matt. The world's changed, the UK changed, Scotland's changed. Um, I suppose the argument would be whether it's changed as much as the SNP or Angus thinks it's changed. But undoubtedly it's changed. But I but at the same time, I, I my caution to to Angus and to others would be don't think that we can go back to the old arguments of 2014. We can't. The old arguments of 2014, now he would argue in, in many ways for those that support the UK, the same arguments of 2014 aren't going to work. And there's probably an element of truth in that. But neither do I think the, the, the arguments that, that, the, that the yes side made in 2014 are now going to work. Um, and, and, I, and, I, and I suppose I, I come from the premise of it's fundamentally up to the Scottish people to decide their future. Of course it is. Of course it is. And as someone that's passionate about Scotland, um, passionate about the Labour Party, I'm, I'm, I'm passionate about democracy, I'm, I'm never going to say that's not the case. I, I suppose my question would be is, do, how long do you want this division to go on for? And the idea, some would say, well, let's just get it over and done with and division stops. Is that what happened with Brexit? <laughs> no. Or the last Scottish independence. Is that what's happened with um, in America, no. So, so the idea that binary choices um, end division and don't amplify them, I, I don't think is true. And I think, given given what the country has been through in the last year, I go back to what I said before: is you know, I, I respect that a lot of people support independence, and I'm also willing to accept that not everyone that supports independence is a nationalist. Um, I think those advocating independence, I think you know, for example. Angus and, and, and Nicola will, will happily describe themselves as nationalists, but I don't think we should fall into the trap of believing that everyone that supports independence is a nationalist. But I don't think we've done the work. Just like I, I, I make a broader point, I don't think I don't think those that oppose Brexit in the Labour Party have done the work in understanding why Labour Heartland areas supported Brexit and why and what needs to happen to address that. The exact same way I don't think um politicians in America have done the work about why did people vote for Donald Trump um, and therefore understood it, why, and addressed it. In the exact same way, I don't think we've done the work in Scotland to understand why people in Scotland 
voted for independence and why they're feeling that way and what we're going to do to address it. And I think until fundamentally we do that, we are going to have a continuation of division. But my request would be, again, in terms of the next electoral context, you're not making a vote for life. You're deciding what your priorities are for the next four or five years. And I think I think we can and should make our collective national mission, regardless of your political affiliation, regardless of your political colour, to, to heal the wounds in our country, bring our country back together again and, and make it a COVID recovery. Let's say there's another referendum on Scottish independence in the next few years. <clears throat> Boris, who uh, <laughs> is the most stable decision maker, says, oh, let's just have it, gets convinced. Last time, uh, whether you agree with this analysis, I'd be interested in, you know, people on the yes side say, well, you know, part of the reason why Scottish Labour collapses is that it shared platforms with Tories. So would Scottish Labour and would people like you do things differently next time? For instance, if Boris calls a referendum, would you share a platform with him or would Scottish Labour be in a different position uh, on the pro-union side? Look, I, to be honest, I'm not, I'm not giving it much thought and, and I've deliberately not given it much thought because just like other people have got other things on their mind, I've got other things on my mind as well, which is, which is coming through COVID-19. Um, I, I don't think it'd be the right thing to have a referendum in the next uh, period, particularly as we come through COVID. I don't think that'd be the right thing to do. And, and I think we shouldn't get carried away about planning for one um, either. Uh, instead, I think we should focus on pulling people together. So I, I'm, I'm sorry, Matt, I'm not going to um, fall into that very nice, open uh, path that you gave me. But what I would say, what I would say, though, is one is, is a legal entity to have an, a designated campaign. So people forget that there, is, there was a legal necessity to have a official campaign that was no, um, just like there was an official campaign to have yes. And I'm sure Nicholas Sturgeon would have been just as uncomfortable to be on the same side as Tommy Sheridan than, than I was to be on the same side as uh, several Tory individuals. So um, so I think you've got to accept that. You've also got to remember that when it, when it came to the Brexit referendum, there were SNP people sharing platforms with Tories. There was Tories that agreed with them against Brexit. They were okay for to share platforms with them. So I think we just got to have a, a, a realisation about that. Um, but we also shouldn't forget that um, I, 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 I led and I set up a separate Labour campaign in the independence referendum because I recognised that there was a Labour case to make. Now, my, my frustration would be that I don't, I don't think um, the, the UK party or indeed enough of the Scottish party took the importance of a, of a separate Labour campaign serious enough and, and I don't think we resourced it and supported it as much as we should have done, and it became a bit of an afterthought. I think that was I think that was fatal. But do I do I think having been part of a designated campaign was the wrong thing to do? I'm I'm not willing to accept it was the wrong thing to do. I just think that we should have had a more robust Labour campaign. And I did my best. I I got a big red bus. We 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 um, painted it red or livvied it red. I was really I was really worried one day because. Um, we thought we got the Pantone colour wrong. Oh, that's a true story. So we, we, we were going we to unveil, honestly, we were going to unveil the the Labour bus the next morning on Buchanan Street. We'd booked the slot. And the night before, we thought, oh my God, we've sent the wrong Pantone number to the livery people. And we thought it was the pink, that was the same pink as the Harriet Harman bus. <laughs> so on, I'm not kidding. I'm oh, not kidding. So, so so we sent we sent my poor staffer John, we sent my poor staffer John because the bus depot was shut, right? 
and there's no way we, we can speak to anyone where we're really bricking it. The oh no, our big red bus that we've got the press for tomorrow is going to be pink. So we got John to get to to go to the bus depot to take his ladder with him to climb oh, up man. the side of the wall and do a, do a nosy on the bus to make sure it was the right colour. Um, so no, with the big red red bus, and, and and I toured I toured Scotland for three months, um, making a specific labour case because I was passionate about making a labour case um, for the UK. So pe- people forget that that happened. I think I think people on in the SNP side conveniently forget because they, they want to pretend that there wasn't there was just one unified or or one platform. And I also think sadly too many people on the labour side pretend because it suits their political narrative and their political mission, and. Um, you know, I, I'm I'm sick and tired of people using that as an excuse to to batter us with on our own side for for purely factional reasons. And um, we we should be proud of the fact, um, despite how difficult it was, that we um, didn't have independence voted for in 2014. And um, that, that for me, that is labour. That's labour values, labour principles to have solidarity across the UK. We have never been um, a pro-independence party. People talk about Home Rule. Home Rule was not independence. So. They can try and steal our clothes. They can try and steal Keir Hardy's narrative. Keir Hardy was not pro-independence. He he was an MP in England at one point, and he was advocating home rule. Home rule was devolution. And this week we've had a lot about devolution with Boris Johnson saying devolution is a disaster. Boris Johnson's a disaster, by the way, not devolution. But it's also worth pointing out that Boris Johnson's not the only prime minister or only leader, sorry, that thinks devolution is wrong. Nicholas Sargent thinks devolution is wrong. Independence is not devolution. They want you to pretend independence is devolution. It's not. And only Labour really, truly is passionately supporting devolution. And I think that's a good platform for us to, to. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact. You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Build on. It's always reassuring when politicians from different parties work together on different things, whether it is referendum campaigns, whether it's on issues. And you and Hamza Youssef won a Holyrood Award. Uh, a couple you were of years. there, Matt. I was. I think I was hosting the ceremony, <laughs> which is why it was so memorable for me. Um, but you two won an award for the work that you've done um, combating racism in Scotland. Uh, what's your relationship like with each other? Good. I mean, very good. Um, we both disagree with each other on... The independence question, as you can imagine, but to be honest, we don't really talk about the independence uh, question. Um, we, um, we 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 don't we probably don't talk anywhere near as much as people think we do. Um, but but I think when it comes to um, what we think is our collective interest in terms of um, advocating against prejudice and hatred in all its forms, I I, I think um, we, we're allies in that, and I think and that's something that I 
that I'm very, very proud of and, and not something I'll ever apologise for. I think it's important. I, I think, and, and um, it's a strange one, Matt, because I think Hamza and I are in a, in a similar situation um, in that, see, when you're a um, politician and um, trying to emerge or, or grow and develop in your own political party, um, particularly from a BME background, you go through a period where you kind of have to try and deny your own minority because you want to be accepted as a mainstream figure. You want to be accepted as equal to anyone else. You've got to work 10 times harder, by the way, to, to be accepted as equal to, to anyone else. Um, and, and I think both of us were probably at a stage, I certainly was, where having been in frontline politics for coming on to eight years um, having been deputy leader, having um, lost a seat at the general election, having lost a leadership election, I feel I felt so liberated. Um, and and this this may sound strange, but I I genuinely believe that um, when I finally pack it in, I will look back on those two defeats and think that they were the two best things that happened to me in my political career. And and I genuinely mean that. And um, they can't have felt like that at the time. No, they they certainly didn't feel like that at the time, but honestly, looking back, so, so I'm I'm not the kind of person that um that either enjoys a success for too long or wallows on a failure for too long. Um, I'm a great believer in the in the poem. If yes, by treat those two imposters just the same. And indeed, indeed. So um, I read it regularly. So I I, I um I, I don't dwell on these things for too long. But but Jane, I I honestly think looking back that those two defeats. Um, have made me, I think, a better politician. Have made me a better human being, but most importantly of all, I think, made me a better father as well. So, so I, I, so I actually, look at as, as a positive. third defeat in the Holyrood elections next year would would be great for you. That would be the hat trick. You'd look back on a crushing <laughs> defeat in May as, as one of I'm the best hoping, things that ever happened to you. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping the only hat trick next year is a Scotland hat trick in the England game. That's the only hat trick I'm hoping for next year. But, but, but going back to the, going back to the going back to the point is like, I, I think. Because people have this perception, right? So people have this perception uh, of me, Matt, and um, someone that's very close and dear to me got me a, a, a Marmite uh, jar with my name on it for my for my birthday this year. And um, people have this perception that you know he was his he was he was his family you know groomed him from the moment he was born to go into politics. I always remind them that if that was the, if I was if the plan was for me to go into politics from the moment I was born, my dad wouldn't have called me an ass. That's the first thing I always say to people, and 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 the second thing is I think I think people forget that actually, um, the, the politics I grew up in was very traumatic, um, so my, my my dad didn't have any easy time in politics. He was he was a controversial figure breaking through as a first uh, Muslim MP. Um, my my earliest political memory is leaving to go to school in the morning, and seeing a a letter on my. Uh, doorstep that didn't look to didn't look normal um, I think I was only 12 at the time um, opening it up and seeing you know you get the cut out alphabet letters yeah from um, the newspaper cut out alphabet from the newspaper yep so someone had taken a picture of my mum <sighs> and had had her mocked up as being tied to a chair um, with two guns pointed to her head with alphabet letter kick out saying bang bang that's all it takes um, oh my God. So I, I I remember that I remember being our car being followed when we were kids and 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 wondering about who was following us. I remember prank phone calls. I remember 
you know, glass bottles being thrown at us when we were out in the city centre. I remember being out to campaign, doing my first leaflet run in the 1997 general election campaign and being punched um, <gasps> by by someone because I was out campaigning for a black man um, and my, my dad was a Paki B. Um, so, so people forget all these things about, they're all reasons. So, I, I mean, I, I grew up passionate about politics, but never wanting to be a politician. Um, and I've always been passionate about wanting to change the world. And, and that might sound naive, but I've always said to myself and to my family that if I, I want to dedicate my life to changing the world and, and the moment I don't think that that can happen in politics anymore, I'll be wanting to do something else, but I'll still do something that means I'm helping to change the world. Um, that racism and, and, that you and your family yep, and you, faced, was that just a collection of random individuals targeting you or was that part of any sort of organised or orchestrated campaign? So there was this group called Combat 18 back in the day. Yeah. Um, that that was very um, aggressive towards my family. You know, they, they didn't want the first ever Muslim MP to be elected. They thought it would open the floodgates to lots more uh, Muslim MPs. And I'm pleased to say they were right. Um, we've, we've, we've had lots of uh, Muslim uh, MPs from across the UK. Um, we've got a Muslim mayor of, of London. And I, and I know Sadiq often says that if um, my father hadn't opened the gate for him, he couldn't have walked through it. So, um, so we're, we're proud of him. And we're proud of all our um, elected members from whichever political party they might be from that come from a BME background. But that was a, that was a huge sacrifice. Um, but, I, I, but but all that you know, so all, all of that makes you not want to do politics. Um, but my politics doesn't come from my dad; it comes from my mum. Man, my my <clears throat> my mum is the most extraordinary, amazing human being in the world, and my politics comes from her. My values come from her. My dad hates it when I say this, by the way, but it's true. <clears throat> um, I, I probably, I probably get my political skills from from my dad, and he's he's one of the one of the best political operators I've ever seen in my life. And I and I think to be from his background, you had to be. Um, but in terms of in terms of values and politics, I get that from my mum. And people don't know this, but actually, the first ever Sarwar to make a headline was my mum, Praveen Sarwar. Um, when what was the long before for? the headline was for you, you'll laugh at this. And um, the headline was for um, well before my old man was in politics, he had this little um, corner shop in Pollock Shields, and Mary Hill, sorry, but he lived in Pollock Shields. And what they used to do is he used to he used to collect the cash, and at the same point every time of the week, just below the flat was the Bank of Scotland branch. He used to go and deposit the cash or the coins into this Bank of Scotland um, account in the branch and he was going out one day and four people in balaclavas uh, jumped him just outside the front of the um, oh, up, up, of the flat and with with um um totally laid into him i mean broke broke bones and everything um left him completely lacerated and my mum my, my eldest brother was only i think nine months at the time my mum saw this happening from the window and so picked up a broken uh, table leg Oh barefoot, God. barefoot in her Asian Cheval Camise dress, ran ran down the bottom of the stairs, walloped one of the thugs <laughs> on the head, um, walloped a second thug on his on his back, um, the third one ran away, the fourth one with a bag of money um, ran down the street, and my mum and her bare feet chased him all the way down the street, um, chased him for a good um, half a mile. 
eventually threw the uh, kitchen leg, at the kitchen table leg at him, hit him on the back, knocked him over, and then pounced on top of him. And by this time, the police arrived. And so the headline was this uh, super wife who came to the rescue of her, of her poor, poor husband uh, and saved her family's hard-earned income. And at this point, you know, we were, we were a, uh, we had a really small shop. Uh, my family had a really small shop. We lived in a flat in, in Pollock Shields um, with my grandparents living with us as well, extended family living with us. We were by no means well off um, at that time. So that was the first woman, uh, the first Sarwar that ever made a headline. Wow. I've still got the cut out. First, still got the cut out from the Daily Record from the time. Um, Amazing. She was a hero. She was a hero then. She's still a hero now. She was basically the John Smeaton of her day. She was the Smeeto of her day. Bring it on. I tell you, even now, she'd be the one that I'd have on the front line any day of the week. Um, <laughs> she's now, she, now, she, now, she now leads a charity project for us in, um, in Pakistan where um, she's helping to deliver clean drinking water to 2 million people every single day. Um, and, a, and a women's empowerment project, 150 women's empowerment centres uh, in Pakistan employing over 40,000, training over 40,000 women. Um, so she's a, a phenomenal woman. And I'm truly, truly blessed to, to have her in my life. And your dad, who who was obviously a Labour MP, is now the governor of Punjab. He is. He 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 takes great pleasure in reminding me that he has 120 million constituents, um, and that he's the head of state. And he also takes great pleasure in reminding me that um, he was in, in uh, elected from 1997 to 2010. So he takes great pleasure in reminding me that every day he was in politics, Labour was in government. Yeah. And every day I've been in politics, <laughs> Labour's been out of government. And he likes to claim that he's responsible for that. <laughs> so um, he, 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 he enjoys that. He enjoys that. But he's, honestly, he's, he's, he's some guy. He's, uh, he's hilarious, but he's, he's some guy. He is. Um, it's just heartbreaking to hear about those appalling racist attacks on you. Uh, obviously, the Labour Party in the last few years has had to have a conversation with itself about anti-Semitism and how effective that conversation has been given the week's events, uh, you know, still is a matter of some debate. It's often seen as, you know, the, the left is anti-Semitic and, and the right is Islamophobic, that they're the kind of racisms that exist in those places. But you've talked about this before and it's been on the front pages in the last few years, that as well as anti-Semitism on the left, you've also faced Islamophobia as well. Look, I think, I think it's really important to say that no political party, no organisation, and no institution is immune to any form of prejudice. Um, are there sexist, racist, homophobes, Islamophobes, anti-Semites across the board? Of course there are. And I think in any effort to deny it would be ludicrous. I think where I would hold the Labour Party in a, to a different standard is we were born out of the premise of equality and born at the premise of every person should have the same opportunity in life, regardless of their race, their religion, their background, their social status, their gender, their sexuality. That, that's, we were born at that. And so if we don't hold ourselves to a higher standard, the gold standard, then I think we are failing in those proud traditions that we stood on. And that's why the, the anti-Semitism stuff was so, was so difficult. Um, I think people forgot that, you could, that there is no contradiction between being solid on a foreign policy position, but also being fundamentally and utterly abhorred by the by anti-Semitism, which is a cancer in our society and one that we should have no truck with. And and you know, I I proudly stand shoulder to shoulder with people in the, from the Jewish community, both inside and outside the Labour Party, about what they've had to endure over the over the last number of years. It, 
we can't leave these individual fights. And this is the point I'm, I'm making a much more broader sense is we can't leave individual fights against prejudice and hatred to those individual communities. They've got to be a fight for all of us if we're going to defeat them. And I, I find anti-Semitism and Islamophobia so similar in terms of in terms of how they impact on, on our communities. You know, one community is blamed for ruining the world. The other one is accused of running the world as, the, as often the, the, the funny joke I have with Skojek, which is the Scottish Council of Jewish Communities we have here. But if you actually look at so this narrative has been allowed to build. So are there are there Islamophobes and racists and anti-Semites in the Labour Party? Yes, there are. Um, are there Islamophobes, anti-Semites and racists in the Conservative Party? Yes, there are. But we should hold ourselves to a higher standard and, and never look like we are equivocating uh, on that issue. But we, we've also got to recognise that we can't allow this, this frame of the left is, is has one extreme and the right has one extreme. Actually, those two extremes meet in the middle sometimes when it comes to this prejudice and hatred, and we've got to be alive to that. And that's why I think, um, and again, I know I know I keep rooting back to what's happening in the US, but that's that's because you and I are both US political junkies. Is I get frustrated when I hear people say that um, not everyone that. Um, not everyone who voted for Trump or voted for Brexit or voted for the Tories is racist, but every racist did vote for Trump or Brexit or the Tories. It's just not true, Matt. It's not true. We can comfort ourselves by saying it, but it's not true. And what, what I'm really intrigued to see in the coming period is all those people that were really happy to come and stand shoulder to shoulder with us in the fight against all forms of prejudice and hatred, when it suited them for their own political positioning and their own political opposition, are they still going to stand side by side with us against anti-Semitism, against racism, against Islamophobia, against sexism, against homophobia, now that the politics in some of those places have moved on? We don't need fair weather friends. We need people to speak out and challenge, no matter where it's coming from or who it's against. And, 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 and again, I would make this point is, I'm sick and tired of politicians who want to pick and choose who want to judge their condemnation or their solidarity based on the politics or the perceived politics of the person that's the perpetrator or the person that is the victim. Um, I know there are people who would find it really difficult to condemn Islamophobia or to stand shoulder to shoulder with me because they have factional divisions with me in the Labour Party, but then claim to be anti-racists. That's just not acceptable. Um, I, I, I will stand shoulder to shoulder with anyone. I'd stand, if there was a Tory tomorrow, that was a victim of racist abuse or homophobic abuse or sexist abuse, I wouldn't think twice by standing shoulder to shoulder with them. Because a, a, that should be a collective fight for us. And, and going back to your point about working with uh, Hamza, I'll work with anyone to challenge prejudice and hatred. And and because we've got to build a, we've got to build a coalition. We've got to build a coalition of unity. And, and this goes back to I think probably connected in, in a broad way to to the, the whole constitutional question is at the moment, division and disunity is on the rise right around the world. It, it feels like our world is broken. I, I remember thinking really naively 10 years ago that my kids were going to grow up in a, and I said this in speeches, and I, and I look back and I think how deluded I was. I genuinely believe that my kids were going to grow up or had a chance of growing up in a post-racial world where people would judge them on the content of their character, not on the color of their skin or their faith. I don't believe that anymore. I think my children are going to grow up in a more hate-filled, a more divided world than I did. And I find that absolutely frightening. So let's not pick and choose. Let's not equivocate. Let's build a movement of unity 
So when the chance comes to take on the the tide of disunity, we can we can turn the tide and, and bring our country and our people back together right around the world. And what's your experience been like as a Muslim in the Labour Party? Has it changed over the years? Have you faced Islamophobia from, from Labour members? Um, or other forms of racism? Yeah, I think, I think there's, there's, there's covert. I mean, I've, I've spoken about some experiences that I had during the, the leadership um, election when I was told um, that, you know, they, someone couldn't support me because Scotland would never accept a brown Muslim Paki. <gasps> and um, what was that? A member? Was that an MSP? Um, so, I mean, it's quite a high profile case. <gasps> it was an elected, an elected member. Um, that that told me that who's has oh since denied God. it, but but I, I I know the truth and they know the truth, um, and and you know p- perhaps and I said this at the time perhaps um, that individual was only expressing what people had said to him and and he was being honest, but that that was his view. I had other people telling me that I was a Muslim extremist, that I was um, that I was a, a a closet supporter of wanting to bring in. Um, you know, Islamic scriptures and Islamic law into the country. It's, but is this, lo- from, lots is, is this lots in the Labour Party? This was Labour Party members, yeah. My I'm not pretending. Word. I'm not. I'm not pretending there was a a, a swathe or a massive number. But th- were, did people ask me that? We were Labour Party members, absolutely. And one of the things that I, and, and I remember is during the leadership election, there was lot. The campaign canvassers kept coming back to me, and 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 I used to get this directly as well, where people would say. People that, we, that you'd often naturally regard as being on your side would say, nah, I can't, I can't vote for them. And they say, okay, why? And then just, there's just something. And they'd, so they'd, they'd then go through all the list of controversies. <laughs> they'd go through all the list of controversies and the parents would like, no, no, not that. No, 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 I agree with them on that. No, no, not that, not that, not that. Then they say, okay, what is it then? Like, it's just something. Oh, it's man. just something. And... You know, I know what that something is. I'm not pretending it's a majority of folk. I'm not pretending it's widespread, but one is one too many. Um, and you know, my my um, my uh, dad uh, back in 1995 had to take the Labour Party to court uh, because there was a um, a dodgy selection vote, um, to put it mildly. Um, and there was a clear systematic attempt to stop um, an ethnic minority candidate being selected into a, a winnable Labour seat. So we had to take the party to court, to the High Court, to win that um, to win that selection. And and honestly, some of the things that he, I remember him telling me that he heard, I heard them back 25 years later, and it broke my heart. Matt, it broke my heart, and it made me, it made me think about what the challenge is for my own kids going forward. Um, but, it's, but it's also liberating in the sense of, and I said this to you earlier on, um, one, the ability to be a mainstream, now being recognised as a mainstream politician makes it easier to speak out. Yeah. And not having the pressure of people wanting you to do something anymore because you've been through that contest is so liberating. And actually, not having ambition anymore is so liberating as well. <laughs> but, but not having an ambition is kind of honestly, honestly, honestly. I, I, and I don't, I don't mean that as a joke. Oh, I'm being man. serious. It is so, it is so liberating because, um, I, if you look at the generational issues 
my grand my grandparents' generation were 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 blind deliberately blind to the prejudices they faced because they thought they were guests in this country. They actually said that. They used to say we're guests in this country. These people are being good to us. We're guests in this country. We should just put our head down and take it. My father my father's generation was, you know, these people have been good to us. Things will change. It'll be fine. Right? And then for our generation, I think um, we have and I think I think it's also a connection. My grand if you, my grandfather would have thought he was he was Pakistani, but he was here. My dad would have thought that he was probably largely Pakistani, but but a proud British citizen. For my generation, I'm British and Scottish. This is my home. I'm not going anywhere. I've still got an affinity to Pakistan, partly because my parents now live there. I've got an affinity to it. And so I'm, I think I can change the system and I'm trying to work the system and try and change the system to make it work. I think that's going to be a much, much different scenario when it comes to my kids' generation. My kids' generation are not, are, are they've got nowhere else to go. They don't have an affinity to anywhere else apart from here. They're not going anywhere. This is their home. And I think if their belonging is questioned, their home is questioned, I think that's going to be much, much harder for them. And, and, I think, and I think their rebellion is going to be much, much stronger. And I think you've seen this in other parts of the world where they're just going to say, F you, we're not willing to wait. We're not willing to wait for the system to give us fairness. We're going to grab it. We're going to take it. And, and, and I think before we get to that, what I think will be a really psychologically difficult part for that generation to get in, we've got a duty to try and fix it. Um, and let, and let, let me show you a, a story, um, Matt, which is actually quite, quite a beautiful story in one part, but also a heartbreaking story in the second part. Is my, my eldest son, Adam, when he was eight, so he's got, his best friend is a, is a boy called Zach. And, and, and don't worry, uh, Zach's parents know that I often tell this story, usually at, usually at dinner parties. Um, but, um, but, but, they, but they know I, I, I share this story, so I've got permission to, to use Zach's name. So when, when Adam was eight, I saw this thing on Facebook that said, this test for your kids. Right? So I tried this test on Adam when he was eight. So I said, Adam, you and Zach, what's the biggest difference between the two of you? And he said, oh, Zach's, Zach's taller than me. I'm shorter than him. I'm not right. Anything else? He said, oh, um, Zach's better at football than me. I'm not okay. Anything else? He said, oh, Zach's Jewish and Muslim. I said, okay, anything else? Mm, can't think of anything else. Can't think of anything else. And I said to him, think colour. And he said to me, oh, yeah. Zach's got blue eyes. I've got brown eyes. <laughs> Beautiful. It was beautiful. And then I and because children children don't see difference. They're taught difference. They don't see difference. Fast forward six months, and, and it actually just happened to be during the leadership election as well, actually. Fast forward six months. And um I come home from the Scottish Parliament and Adam is clearly not in a good place and he's he's up in his room, uh, not talking. So I so I go up and I'm, I'm put in bed and I I lie in next to him and I say to him, he started a new football training that day. Um, and I said to him, what's wrong? You've not been, you're not, you're not happy. And he said, no, I don't want to talk about it. And I said, no, no, tell me what happened. And he goes, I was at the football training today and uh, we were playing and after the training, we were having one of the matches and one of the boys in my team said he didn't want to pass to me because I was only packing the team. <gasps> and honestly, Matt, that was the day he learned racism. 
it broke my heart. Broke my heart. Oh God. And to put it into context, it was it was during the leadership election, which was obviously quite a difficult time. And the same day, there was a Labour Party, a, a prominent Labour Party campaigner, I won't name them, who tweeted, the problem is Anasawar's children will never understand inequality. Oh my God. It was the same day, someone, someone tweeted, Anasawar's children will never understand inequality. And I went home and I had that. And honestly, I cried that night. I'm not a crier. I'm not a crier. But I cried that night because, um, one, obviously, my son had, had, had discovered what, what racism and prejudice was. And second, the, the people that I joined um, because I wanted to, partly wanted to fight that, also didn't understand what it was either. I mean, I left the Labour Party when Jeremy Corbyn became leader. Can you come back now? I don't think I'd ever join any political party ever again, but... Doesn't make economic people sense, you, Matt, People have made... Um, people have made... People have left for far less. I mean, has it ever crossed your mind to just think, you know what, I, I don't really particularly like the way this party treats me. I don't want to stay. No, no, so I... Um... Have I ever thought about leaving politics? Absolutely. Probably very recently, to be to be frank about it. Um, as I say, I've always said to myself that um, I I came into politics because I, I want to change the world. And, and, and if I think I can do that better by doing something else, I'll go and do something else. But I'll never leave the Labour Party, Matt. I'll never leave the Labour Party. Because... The Labour Party, to me, isn't one collection of people at what, any one point in time. The Labour Party, to me, is an idea and a mission that's greater than any individual or any individual leader. And I, I'm, I'm going to stay true to that mission. Um, and all, all, I, all I see myself as, in, in no grand way at all, all I see myself as is a as a staging post on that on that journey, and this is the challenge that I give to my own colleagues um, in private, but also in, in public. Is we are the guardians. We are mere, we are merely the guardians of this great institution and political movement. And what we are going to be collectively judged on is whether the what was handed to us in terms of our turn or our time in trying to manage and, and lead that movement is what we're going to be judged on is what state of movement we then hand over to our next generation. And I would hate for us to be in a situation where we were the generation that saw the demise of the Scottish Labour Party. That would break my heart. Um, so I'm, I'm not willing to let that happen. I love it too much. But you, you were, you were, it crossed your mind to leave politics fairly recently. Yeah. I, 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 to be honest, I did um, on more than one occasion. Um, obviously, the um, we you know when when I when I left the front bench, I was I was not um, I was not upset to to leave the front bench. I was just upset in the manner it was done. My my, my frustration was not. I, I and I felt liberated on the back benches, and 
and I did I did say to Richard at the time, I, I'm happy to serve. Anytime you want me to do something, I'm happy to do, to do it. Despite what's happened, I care about this party. I care about the country. If I'm asked to serve, I'm going to do it. I'm not going to plead and beg and, and chap your door and, and force my way in. But if you want me to help, I'll always be here to help. And, and when he asked me to come back, uh, that's exactly what I what I, what I said and, and what I did. And I'm happy to take even a very difficult job like the Constitution, I'm happy to take on because I care about the Labour Party in Scotland. Um, but the manner in which it was done um, was, was difficult at the time. Um, and we live in a new digital age. It's interesting being sacked by Twitter was, was interesting. So um, when you say sacked by Twitter, was it that you saw a news outlet report it or did Richard Leonard tweet you at Anasawar, you're fine? <laughs> no, no. So, so there was there was rumours that there was going to be a reshuffle that day, and and I'm telling this story not to open up old wounds, um, more more because um, I'm glad we're moving on from those old wounds. Um, but I I, um, I remember I was I was reading on a Labour debate on health because I was the shadow health secretary at the time, and there was rumours all morning that there was going to be a reshuffle, um, and that. And there was there was rumours that Jackie Bailey and I were the, were going to be the two victims. You had Jackie on your show not not too long ago. It's great to see Jackie as deputy leader and back at the front bench. Um, that that's it's great to see her back. Um, but I um, so I was walking I was walking to the um, chamber, and as I was walking to the chamber, uh, a senior official, uh, not an elected member, but a senior official um, who um, was part of the leaders team. I said to them, I hear there's rumours of a reshuffle. I'm just about going. I'm just about going to the um, chamber to lead a Labour health debate. It'd be good to get a heads up. Um, I won't say anything. It'd be good just to get a heads up, just so there's no embarrassing moment while I'm in the chamber. And the individual said to me, "It's all gossip. There's no reshuffle happening." <gasps> right. I walked into the chamber. Fifteen minutes later. Fifteen minutes later. Um. It had been briefed to um, a um, news or news outlet similar to Squawk Box, which is basically like the internal mouthpiece um, in in Scotland. Um, and there was an emoji tweeted by um, Scottish Labour students and also by um, this with a with a with a source close to uh, comment with uh, waving hand signs and saying bye bye and Asawa and Jackie Bailey. Um, and then the, the, my replacement was announced um, while I was in the uh, while I was in the chamber, um, and all of this time I'd still not been told that I was um, no longer. So was, I found out on on Twitter, um, which was interesting. Um, it's a, certainly, certainly a new way to do things in the digital age. It's not even that you found <laughs> out on Twitter; it's that you were basically trolled. It's not that it was like the news was delivered that way, which would be bad enough. That is terrible. Yep. That, that's how we found it was the wave. Um, so, so that I mean that that was that was difficult because um, I did think to myself that you know I am um, I'm de- I'm I'm committed to dedicating my life to the Labour Party and whatever happens and uh, happens. But you know, we there are better ways of treating people. Yeah, and, and um, since have you considered leaving? Has there been anything else since then? Yeah, I think I think. Um, yeah, in recent and and but this year, I'm I'm I would say as close as this year. I've, I've um, I, not in the, not any serious thought, not any like I'm definitely going to go. But I I did think I did have to stop and reflect and think to myself, could I, could I achieve more, um, 
in terms of the things I believe in and, and things I want to change in the world by by not being in frontline politics. Um, but fundamentally, I still think politics is what what delivers change. You can you can manage and, and do little bits of change uh, around the fringes for for lots of really good causes and for lots of hundreds of thousands of people. For example, the work that we do now with, with my own charity foundation. Um, but if you want to deliver massive change, it's still I think I still fundamentally believe you do it through politics, and I still fundamentally believe that the vehicle in which best to do that is the Labour Party, um, and that's why. That's why I'm still here. I mean, it must be frustrating for you. It's frustrating for supporters of, say, Scottish Labour or, you know, the people who voted Remain, you know, when, when, when your side's losing and you feel like the things that you care about are at risk or indeed being lost, you know, in, overall. But it must be frustrating for you personally and for other politicians who are kind of bright talents in any movement when they find themselves in opposition because there's a parallel universe where Anna Sawa is First Minister, there's a parallel universe where you're Prime Minister of the UK. You know, it's not inconceivable that had British politics and Scottish politics gone a different way, you would be one of the leading lights of our country's politics at a UK level. You could even be running it. I think that I think that is very kind of you to say, but <laughs> perhaps, uh, thank, thankfully, I never dreamed such dreams, Matt. Otherwise, I might be a, a lot more demoralised than, than I might have sounded a moment ago. Um, look, look, Paul, this is life, isn't it? I mean, it's life. In, in, in life, things sometimes things will go your way and sometimes things will not go your way. It's about, I think, still being true to yourself and, and true to what you believe in. And um, that happens in every walk of life, whether it's in someone working in, in their own field or someone working in, in politics. So I, I, that, that, that side of it doesn't bother me. The, titles, the title has never mattered to me. The, the 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 job has never mattered to me. Positions have never mattered to me. It's about what you do with them, and 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 that and that's the challenge I would give to 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 my own colleagues, but also to people in other political parties. Is it's really easy to live for the day to day. It's really really easy to live for the day to day, to live for the daily glory, to to live for that one win or that one great great speech or that one great line or that one great election. People will people will not remember those things. What people will remember is what you actually did, but largely also how you made them feel. And 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 I suppose this links to the um, to where we are constitutionally. Is I think we've lost in recent times the understanding of the the the, the emotion of politics. And unless we win the emotion argument, we're not going to get to win the the principles argument as well. And then be able to change people's lives. Because if we're not in it to change people's lives, what are we doing it for? It isn't show business. It's it's you, you are you are. I honestly feel like um, that I am I am I have been given a a gift and a platform by by my peers who I am no better than. But I've been given a, a gift and a platform by them, and I have a duty to use that gift and platform, and. I owe that to my kids, but also owe that to the people that, that supported me and put me where I am. I've kept you far longer than I promised I would, but just one last thing. Earlier you mentioned that you'd had three careers. The first career, of course, was as a dentist. Now, I've had, right. an, I've had an ongoing problem with a wisdom tooth that, that has never come through the gum at the back. And it, it periodically got infected a few years ago, but because of work, 
I couldn't go and have it out because obviously I'm, my, I've not done I've not done dentistry for ten years. But if you want me to do my first retra- uh, extraction <laughs> back, I'm really really pleased that you're going to be that volunteer. Well, I'd let you do it. Maybe we could live stream it for charity <laughs> or something. But um, should I? It's, it's the wisdom tooth that are below the gum line that that aren't going to come through, but they're just sort of sat there and they occasionally flare up. No, just occasionally. It's if I have like a sugary drink or something. Up. It yeah. swells up. So I treat so it. Is there is there is there is there food getting stuck underneath it? That's so sometimes the, what happens. Because there will be because yeah. there, there will be a gum flap. That's what it is. Um, so, so, a, so so what will happen is under that gum flap will be food getting collected, etc., and that's what's causing the swelling of the gum, and then you're biting down the gum that's making it even worse. That's right. Have you, wisdom, had to, have you had to use Have you had to use antibiotics at any point? I did a few years ago. Yeah, I mean, this has been sort of ongoing. I, I manage it well actually with Curacept ointment that I use. Um, Topically, and Cor- the curac- Corsidil mouthwash is very, very good. I use Corsidil mouthwash. I use um, Curacept, which is really, really good. Um, but, I mean, it's fine at the moment. It's just that I know at some point I'm going to have to have these out. So uh, having them extracted when they're below the gum line, the dentist would, what, cut my gum open and pick it out? No, much more complicated than that. Oh, what depending on how Depending on how it's sitting, yeah. you need to cut your gum back, drill away some bone, and then lift it out. Right, and then ha- I then need uh, stitches I'm, in my gums, would I? You would then need stitch in your gum, but your, but they would dissolve after seven to ten days. It's fine. And and what what would that impact on? Like what sort of stuff I could eat? Um, are you worried about your waistline, Matt? Well, no, I just have like you, food. Have you, have you have you have you put on some lockdown weight? I've put on some lockdown weight. Have you put on some lockdown weight? You know what? I've lost weight in lockdown because I um, have you. Yeah, well, yeah. Obviously, you can't tell by looking at me, but. Yeah, I lost a couple of stone, but I beefed up a fair well, bit. So it was, it was weight I had to lose. I've still got a way to go, but it's on a downward trajectory generally. No, but you'll be fine. You, you'll you'll just feel as if you're um, a bit worse for wear for about a week, but then you'll be fine. Okay. It, it will it will not be the most painful experience for you next year. Oh man! <laughs> because the most painful experience for you next year is still going to be Scotland beating England in those European Championships. I mean, you know what? If that happens, I don't think I could. Why would you? Why would you be so embarrassed by it? Because because it's different, isn't it, for England? Like England are expected to win, and that brings a certain pressure. Whereas with Scotland, obviously, you want to beat us. I don't deny that. In fact, you probably want to beat us more, so you'd be more up for it. But then we'll never hear the end of it. No, but I think the I think the problem you guys have is um, you you guys will think that you can win the tournament, not just win the match. So you're going to get so obsessed by footballs oh, coming home. Oh God! Um, whereas so you know, true. whereas I was, I always remember, I always remember the um, when when <laughs> going full circle and, and ending on football conversations. I, I always remember when going to that World Cup and the uh, the Scotland song, the official Scotland song was. Don't come home too soon. I mean, I mean, I mean, you guys were singing, "It's coming home, it's coming home," and we were saying, "Don't come home too soon." It's like, it's like the, the the contrast could not have been more stark. The contrast could not have been more stark about you know you know as as the uh, new Labour years would say, it was expectation management, wasn't it? Wasn't it? Yeah. Expe- expectation management. Whereas, well, we won't so, we won't so, apply. Uh, Expectation yeah, so, management to next year's yeah, Hollywood so, uh, elections. Um, no, I think we should. We should okay. set ourselves a bold target, and we should work towards it. 
in the interest of the Scottish people. And what is that bold target? I think we can still stop an SNP majority and I still think that we can advocate to the people that let's have a parliament that focuses on their priorities, not on constitutional priorities. And Asawa, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you, Matt. A pleasure. There you go, Anna Sarwad, some brilliant dentistry advice at the end as well. So if any of you are suffering from an impacted wisdom tooth that you've been putting off having dealt with, I'm not sure if you may be less likely or more likely to go and get it sorted, actually. Seven to ten days, whether you've got to speak all the time like I have, like, well, most of us do, just in life, the thought of uh, being without that for, for that period of time, the thought of having my gums literally sliced open, obviously by a professional. I mean, I shouldn't dwell on this. This isn't the main takeaway from this interview, but what a guy and uh, what a brilliant approach, not just to politics, but to life. I think people who've never stood for office don't realise. I mean, I've never stood for office, but I've worked for people who have. And it's one of the things that put me off ever wanting to do it was you are uniquely exposed as a candidate and then as an elected politician to all sorts of stuff. Um, And it's... You know, some of that beauty would have got, even had he never stood for office because of his race. But you put yourself in a position where it's more likely. And uh, just the way he's dealt with it all is remarkable. Um, And just that, you know, as well, when you talk to someone who's really direct, it's really refreshing. And not the, the mistake sometimes is to think that people who are controversial are the most direct. But just how honestly he spoke about the way things have been handled in the past, about wanting to thinking about leaving politics, was just so frank and so open and honest that um, sometimes when people just talk normally about those things, you forget actually what a big deal it is for, for them to tell you stuff like that. And, and for a politician to think about not being a politician anymore is a massive deal, particularly at the moment. So um, you can just see where why he's so highly regarded. And... Although sometimes I think guests think I'm, or he might have thought I was almost being uh, cheeky in suggesting there was a parallel universe where he was either first minister or prime minister. I don't think that's ludicrous. And one of the most frustrating things sometimes about when political parties become self-indulgent, and it happens to them all at various points in their existence, is that the real talent gets lost. And if you think of the Labour Party over the last five years, think of those really bright talents that weren't able to shine. It really is just a colossal waste, not just to the party, but to to the country, to the wider good. And someone like Anasawa should be, it should be conceivable that he would be First Minister of Scotland at some point, or Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. So who knows what the future holds, but politics in general is is better for people like Anas and for the the approach they bring, and the pragmatic approach, not afraid to uh, compliment. Uh, his opponents and to give them credit where it's important and uh, that uh, that mindset is obviously something that I hope is is something that lives through this podcast so it's long overdue that I got Anas on he was a superb guest um I hope you're starting to feel festive I am a very pro Christmas person and well putting my decorations at the moment I've finished recording this which I realize is too early but um of all the years, you've got to cut me some slack. Surely it's this one. So an early Merry Christmas, although I know that's going to piss most of you off. Um, and I hope you're well uh, as we come into this sort of colder, darker time. But I find it easier to stay indoors at a time like this. So maybe it's a, a form of blessing. But I hope you keep him well. Um, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you have, leave a review on iTunes. Thank you to all of those of you that have done it. But every single one helps. And of course, you can email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. And if you're not aware that I've got a book out by now, where have you been? 
but you may well have this may be the first episode you've listened to so by the way i've got a book out called politically homeless which you can buy in all reasonably priced good and bad bookshops i shall leave it there for now i'll see you next week Ta-ra. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.